The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. I think of COVID-19 as a systemic disease whose center of gravity is the lungs. And I think it's important to think of it that way. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call, we will discuss topics from an article called Diagnostic Testing for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Related Coronavirus 2, a narrative review that appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine on April 13, 2020. Joining me as experts are Drs. Robbie Jiha and Dr. Reza Manesh. Dr. Jiha is an assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco, working primarily at the San Francisco VA as working both in the emergency medicine department and on the internal medicine wards. Dr. Manesh is an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins uh, School of Medicine, where he's associate program director for clinical reasoning. They're both very active members of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine and the founders of the popular podcast, The Clinical Problem Solvers. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, Robbie and Reza, thank you so much for uh, joining podcast today. And this is a really interesting topic. You're both experts on clinical reasoning, and COVID-19 is a great example of the challenges of clinical reasoning with imperfect information. Why don't we uh, start with a made-up case, but one that uh, I think you'll be very uh, familiar with. Robbie, you work part-time in the VA emergency department and part-time on the wards, and so you really get to see the beginning and then the follow-through on patients. So let's say a Vietnam-era veteran, let's say 69 years old, comes uh, to the emergency department at the San Francisco VA and he has some symptoms that would make you think of COVID-19. Perhaps you could talk about what symptoms would put you in the space where you'd be considering COVID-19, and then how you would work the patient up, what testing you would do before you decide whether or not the patient needs to come to the hospital or not. Uh, fantastic, Rob. That sounds like a great question. I um, I want to take a second to first just acknowledge how uh, how much of an honor it is to be here on your uh, on your podcast, where uh, Reza and I are both huge fans, and it's a it's a it's a delight. And I don't think it would be hyperbole to say it's somewhat of a dream come true to be on here with you. But the real delight is coming on with my partner in crime slash thought, uh, Reza Manesh. So maybe I'll step back and kind of describe the illness script that I have uh, for COVID nineteen in my mind, and then we'll sort of apply that um, to the patient that you have. I think of COVID-19 as a systemic disease whose center of gravity is the lungs. And I think it's important to think of it that way because 
Um, the predominant, at least initial symptoms, the fevers, the myalgias, the not feeling right, overwhelming fatigue, the anosmia slash change in taste that develops in patients are all part of the systemic phenotype, but we all fear it because of its respiratory predominant symptoms, namely uh, the cough, shortness of breath. And we fear it because we know that that can be uh, lethal in a subset of patients. Um, and also its transmission through respiratory mechanisms accounts for the pandemic, really. So that's kind of the classic illness script for symptomatic COVID disease, but there are extremes. And this is where the extremes are the cause of concern. In its most extreme form in regards to severity of symptoms, COVID-19 takes on an acute respiratory distress like phenotype in the lungs. Um, but also takes on three additional forms. It has a thrombotic phenotype resulting in a high, at least as far as we understand it now, a higher rate of thrombotic phenomenon in patients. It also has a myocardial component and a nephrogenic component with a lot of patients, a reasonable number of patients having myocardial involvement and uh, oligaric kidney injury requiring renal replacement therapy. The other extreme is, is, is questionable whether we can call it an extreme, but the other extreme is to reflect on how such a deadly disease can actually have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever. So if you ask me what my illness script for COVID-19 is, I can describe the symptomatic illness script as a symptomatic disease with predominant respiratory symptoms that in a fraction of patients takes on an ARDS, thrombotic, nephrogenic, and myocardial component. But the part that almost paralyzes me, quite frankly, is the number of people who are asymptomatic. So uh, in the patient that you described now who has fever, cough, and symptoms compatible with COVID, I certainly would be worried uh, very much about it. But I worry about equally about anyone who comes into the emergency room with any symptom and wonder whether that patient could have asymptomatic carriage of this disease and therefore um, require the same kind of precautions and executions and care for everyone around that patient. So that that's a great start. Uh, one of my colleagues at UAB uh, likes to call the people who are asymptomatic possibly pre-symptomatic. And so I think that not everyone who's asymptomatic is going to stay asymptomatic. So let's say we have someone who comes in with symptoms. It would be great if we could test everybody who comes to the emergency department. We probably can't just yet. Hopefully we will be able to. But now we have a patient who we think deserves testing. Well, let's talk specifically about the RT-PCR, but also about the other tests that you might do that would sway you one way or another that maybe this patient needs admission? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, Bob. And I also will actually reflect with you and correct myself. I also prefer the term pre-symptomatic. I think it's more descriptive of, uh, of what happens. So I think, of, I think uh, we are blessed with a, fair, a large number of fairly sensitive tests. And when I say fairly, I'm saying in the range of between 50 and 70%. And those tests include a variety of uh, laboratory markers and imaging markers. And so uh, some of the labs would include um, studying the CBC for lymphopenia, studying the LDH for elevation, uh, less so studying uh, um, the liver enzymes, studying elevations in CRP, and a less than impressive uh, a procalcitonin. So usually actually a, a relatively low procalcitonin in the setting of, of concern for infection. Uh, those tests are fairly sensitive, again, in the 50 to 70 percent. Uh, uh, imaging modality in the form of a chest X-ray, which you can be can be rapidly obtained, is also a similar numbers. Um, those tests are great great in their sensitivity, but actually lack extremely in their specificity. Uh, the RT-PCR, in contradistinction to these tests, is similarly sensitive, so has a sensitivity around 70 percent, but as far as we know, is very, very, very specific. 
you know, around uh, over 99 to 100%. So those are the tests that are ordered by frontline providers, the compilation of those lab parameters, ideally portable chest x-ray, and a great sensitive test, not specific, and then the RT-PCR performs fairly well in its sensitivity and specificity. So Reza, let's say that Robbie is worried enough that he admits the patient and you happen to be on the receiving end as a hospitalist. And I know you've done... Uh, time on COVID-19 service, because we've discussed it before, the RT-PCR has not come back yet. So the patient's a PUI, a person under investigation. You're thinking about that patient, and the patient looks to you like they have it, because you've seen a lot of people who've had it now, and the RT-PCR comes back negative. Can you go through why it might come back negative? Absolutely. First, let me thank you, Bob, for inviting us on your podcast. And I will tell you, it would be a highlight of my life to accept a patient from Robbie as the emergency medicine provider. Um, and I think Robbie did a very good job of sort of painting the picture of a patient with COVID-19. And this is where I would apply Bayesian reasoning. And Bayesian reasoning is basically assigning a pretest probability for a specific diagnosis and then altering your post-test probability after the result of a test. So to give you an example, let's say someone has taken a flight from San Francisco to Alabama, and they come to the emergency department with tachycardia and shortness of breath. We know D-dimer has a pretty good sensitivity for um, DVT and pulmonary embolism workup. Let's say you get a D-dimer in that patient and it's negative. Is that enough to dissuade you from getting a CT with contrast of the chest? The answer is no, it's not. Because your pretest probability was high in this patient who just got off a flight with tachycardia and shortness of breath. In fact, some would argue, don't even send the D-dimer. So now let's apply that to this patient who's a veteran above the age of 65 and coming in with symptoms consistent with COVID-19. Since my pretest probability is high, and Robbie discussed the sensitivity of the RT-PCR, which is between 30 and 70% sensitive, what does that mean? 30 out of 100 people with a negative test result will end up having COVID-19. So with that negative RT-PCR, my toast press probability isn't reduced enough to say that this patient doesn't have COVID-19. And Bob, this is critical. Why? For two reasons. One is for the patient themselves, because we know patients who are above the age of 65 are at higher risk of adverse outcomes with COVID-19. But as equally as important, if you are unable to correctly identify a patient with COVID-19, then you cannot implement mitigation. What do I mean by that? Identifying someone with disease and isolating them from others so they don't transmit it and we don't get multiplication of people with COVID-19. So in short answer, the sensitivity of the RT-PCR is not high enough to eliminate the possibility of COVID-19. So I would continue caring for this patient as if they had COVID-19. That's great. And, uh, I'd like both of you all to reflect with me. Uh, There are a lot of reasons why a test doesn't have perfect sensitivity. And this test has great sensitivity in the lab, which suggests either that there's a difference between labs, between the reference lab that developed it, or 
there's a difference between sampling acquisition. And sampling acquisition is not so easy in these patients for a couple reasons. Now, Reza, you sent me a uh, video of exactly how to do this. So why don't you explain to our audience the procedure that the patient goes through and why that procedure is going to miss the COVID-19 at times. Imagine this. Imagine you're the patient and you're going through a drive through clinic or you're going through to an outpatient center to have a nasal pharyngeal swab collected. So that's the main way that we're testing patients for SARS-CoV-2 is through a nasal pharyngeal swab. So what does that mean? So you're the patient. You're going to tilt your head back. Someone is going to take a swab and imagine this swab coming through your nostril right near your set, your nasal septum and going horizontally back all the way to your ear. I just want you to picture that for a second. What's going to be your reaction? You're going to start crying. You're going to want that thing out of your nose as soon as possible. And imagine being the examiner when you see someone in, in sort of an uncomfortable state, your reaction is going to be to pull out that nasal pharyngeal swab. So Bob, I think collecting the sample, although it's non-invasive, to me seems pretty invasive. And knowing that there is going to be discomfort, warning the patient, having that sample be in there for a few seconds and twirling it around before removing it will increase the yield of at least collecting the sample if there is SARS-CoV-2 back there. And uh, as I understand so what, that's the first problem. The second problem is when the patient comes in. And sometimes during the course, the SARS-CoV-2 is no longer in the nasal pharynx, but rather in the lungs. And I think you actually experienced that uh, on your service. Yes. And, and um, I do have to make a plug for Saman Nemotolai, who has been putting the best like up-to-date stats for COVID-19. He's on Twitter, and maybe we can include his Twitter handle um, with this episode, Bob. So a patient of ours who Dr. Shannon Walker was taking care of came in short of breath, cough, um, and there was concern for COVID-19. His symptoms had started 10 days prior. So they got their first nasal pharyngeal swab. It was negative. But again, it didn't reduce the post-test probability enough to dissuade them from collecting another sample. They collected another sample. Again, it was negative. Then they collected a third sample. Again, negative. But they were pretty convinced that this patient had COVID-19 based on the CTA uh, appearance, based on the clinical syndrome. And so they consulted the infectious disease service and together they recommended a BAL. Once the BAL was performed, it diagnosed the patient with COVID-19. Now, when I made a plug for someone, the reason I made that plug, he recently shared an article where they followed 56 patients with COVID-19 and they sampled through throat swabs or nasal pharyngeal swabs for SARS-CoV-2. And what they found was that initially, like right when the symptoms started or that pre-symptomatic phase, is when you're more likely to get a positive test result, okay? But as time progresses, so once you get to day 30 or when you get further away from symptom onset, your yield from a nasal pharyngeal swab is reduced. I'm not saying that the patient is no longer infectious. I'm just saying that the virus doesn't seem to be hanging out in the nasal pharyngeal swab. Where might the virus be? It might be in the lung. 
Um, and the pathophysiology is fascinating because the coronavirus is called corona because it has crown-like spikes on it. This is the S protein, a glycoprotein. The thought is that this S protein, this spike protein, binds to ACE2 receptors on tissues, and this is the way the virus makes itself into the tissue. It happens that in the lungs and in the GI tract, there's a high expression of ACE2 receptors. So it makes sense that after you get through that viral phase, which is that first week, that the virus is gonna be hanging out where the ACE2 receptor expression is the greatest, in the lung, in the GI tract. So, Robbie, when we think about this, this story uh, is, a, is a great story for us to think about diagnostic testing. We have another set of tests, rapid tests, and they would probably have the same problem as the RT-PCR because of where we're getting our samples. The Chinese came out with a call that maybe we should be doing more CT scans because we can get the result of a, of a chest CT more quickly than we can get it from the PCR, and the picture is so characteristic. You have the great experience of working at the entry to the hospital and on the wards. How do you make the decision about doing a CT, and what are the downsides to the CT as a diagnostic test? And that's a great question, uh, Bob. Uh, I'll just take 10 seconds to reflect on, on Reza's point to say that the story of where you test has been a present in medicine forever. I remember a case of disseminated gonococcal infection where no matter how many times we tested the knee, we needed to swab the mucosal surface. So it's interesting to see this kind of story evolve with uh, with COVID-19 about where you test. But uh, but that um, the inability sometimes to find the virus despite a high uh, pretest probability is the rationale for the CT in many institutions. And I would say that um, the CT um, has incredibly helpful sensitivity. In fact, the sensitivity of CT has been reported in some studies to be higher than the RT-PCR. So the question is, then why are we not running to do CTs in all these patients? And I will say that there are two reasons. Uh, the first is, while the sensitivity of CT, which is a, a, a quote-unquote classic description, is classic for COVID and its sensitivity, but actually not so much as specificity. So many other things, in addition to COVID-19, could look the same. Um, the other uh, barrier, which uh, honestly it was very hard for me to anticipate until we started to try to imp to think about how this would happen in our emergency room, realize just the logistical hurdles of getting a CT scan for everybody. Unlike a portable chest x-ray, which can move from room to room to room to room, a CT scan is housed in a single room. And when you think about operationalizing the, the, that to um, to serve as a sieve for, for COVID-19 patients, you realize that there actually needs to be a, a large amount of downtime in cleaning the scanner for the next patient. And that makes uh, makes a CT scan logistically much much harder to use. So the, the latest thing that uh, I've been reading about is uh, the value of the antibody tests. It takes a while to develop antibodies, and I've, I've started learning some things about that. If we'd had an antibody test in the patient that Reza described where the patient was like two weeks into the course, might an antibody test uh, show up positive at that time? It's a blood test. And might that be a way to infer the diagnosis? And either one of you can answer that, or both of you. Bob, I, I think the antibody testing is helpful. Of course, there's limitations to antibody testing. For example, if you test it too early before the immune system, the adaptive immune system has had time to create and, and secrete the antibodies, there can be cross-reactivity on your assays with the other coronavirus strains. 
someone might be immunodeficient, so they might not amount a proper immune response for you to detect on the antibody. But with this patient that I described, who was, I think, three weeks into the course of their illness, I think an antibody testing would have been helpful to further uh, strengthen the likelihood of COVID-19. Also, I, I see another reason for antibody testing. Let's say a lot of these patients we know are pre-symptomatic, may stay asymptomatic. For example, when I went for a run today, I assumed every person I ran by had COVID-19 in the pre-symptomatic phase as a way to protect myself. But what if we could test providers to see who has IgG antibody that suggests immunity to the coronavirus? Well, now all of a sudden, maybe you can have those physicians take care of the patients with COVID-19 as opposed to a physician who hasn't seroconverted yet. Um, so that's where I think the utility of antibody testing might come into play. And the other domain, Bob, would be plasma therapy, where you take antibodies from recovered patients, and then in those who are the sickest, you administer this antibody to those patients as a way to treat the, the COVID-19. Would you both agree that the real benefit potentially of antibody testing is to get a better idea of how many asymptomatic slash presymptomatic people there are that we're not testing at all, and we really don't know the extent of the epidemic at this point? As a, someone who loves math, you cannot function at all without a denominator, especially in a pandemic. And so I think the serology is absolutely necessary here. To finish up, I'd like both of you to uh, reflect for a minute on how the tools of clinical reasoning, and, and you've said it uh, in a couple different ways, but I'd like to just one more explicit try, that everything that we've learned about clinical reasoning for other problems applies to COVID-19, and it means that there's not one test or one thing that puts you over and says, okay, now we know where we are but it's the whole reasoning process. And I'll let you all go in the order that you'd like to go in. Um, yeah, I, I am happy to report that clinical reasoning is alive and well in the era of COVID and <laughs> as, is, is unchanged. And I think that um, in many situations when you, when you have a chief concern that is anywhere near the thorax, quite frankly, it's test and reason later. And that is a quote from uh, my dear friend and colleague, uh, Charmaine Shikarchan, who uh, Uncle Bob knows is another member of the CP Solvers. And I think that fundamentally reflects what should happen. The clinical presentation is so varied that you really should just test as far as your capabilities and reason later. And what do I mean by reason later? It's exactly the scenario that, uh, that Reza walked us through. You have to reason if the clinical scenario continues to build and look like COVID despite the negative test. And that's when the role of sharpening your clinical reasoning skills is necessary. It's not fundamental upfront when the base rate of the disease tells you you should think about it in everybody, but it becomes absolutely crucial in a situation where everything is telling you COVID except the RT-PCR. I love that, Robbie. And, and Bob, is it okay if I just share uh, my error in the hospital with your audience so they can learn from it? So I was on the, um, on the ward taking care of patients exclusively with COVID-19 with my dear colleague, uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy. And it was day one where I was taking care of a patient with heart failure, preserve ejection fraction, who came in with dyspnea, tachycardia, fever, myalgias, had a positive um, RT-PCR for SARS-CoV-2. And so we were treating for COVID-19. And I remember every morning I would come into the hospital and I'd go through my checklist. What's the LDH? What's the procalcitonin? What's the D-dimer? What's the oxygenation? What's the temperature? 
When was the, how, how far away are we from symptom onset? And then on day three, she said, doc, I've gained four kilograms. I said, what do you mean? She's like, did you forget I have heart failure with preserve ejection <laughs> fraction? And I said, wait, there's other diseases besides COVID-19? So she taught me an important lesson. And this is another clinical reasoning term that applies here is anchoring. Like my entire focus was just COVID-19 and I neglected the other problems the patient has. So I just encourage our audience to learn from my mistake and not only go through your checklist for COVID-19, but go through your checklist as you would without COVID-19. So when you frame the patient, this is a 55-year-old woman with hef-pef and COVID-19 who's here with dyspnea, maybe take out the COVID-19 so you don't anchor on that and you don't forget other important problems. I want your audience to know, I started her on 160 milligrams of IV LASIK twice a day, and within two <laughs> or three days, we got her off the supplemental oxygen therapy. <laughs> um, that, that's a, a great story and one that I'm sure could have happened to anyone. Gentlemen, I just thank you so much for bringing some clarity to uh, the whole issue of testing as of April 19th when we're recording. This will probably change over the next two weeks as we get more information, but this really frames anyone who's taking care of either COVID-19 or potentially COVID-19 patients uh, will have learned a lot from this. So thanks so much. Thank you so Thank much, you. Paul, for the opportunity. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This uh, wide-ranging discussion focused primarily on the principles of clinical reasoning and applying those principles to the diagnosis of COVID-19. As in many other diseases, the clinical presentation makes one consider testing, and at the current time, testing does not exclude the diagnosis. We had examples of people whose initial tests were negative but because there was such a high index of suspicion, we continued to treat that patient as if they had COVID-19. This is not specific to COVID-19. It's a good general principle of clinical reasoning, and I think that's the big value of the discussion that we had. We hope that this was illuminating, and we'll hope you take care of your patients. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.